Thanks, Ken. It's indeed a privilege to be here. I thank the Lord, first of all. I had it all in my mind that I was going to use uh, Pastor Daniels as my point of contact. So if I start, oh, here he comes. If I start to go fast, I know Pastor Tracy Daniels will say, hey, slow down. I had permitted Pastor Daniels to slow me down whenever, whenever I'm going too fast. Now I'm going to open the floor. Anybody can slow me down. So if I see you raise your hand, I know that I'm going a little bit too fast. All right? So you, you, ha- you have that option. But I first of all thank the Lord for the privilege. I thank the Lord for this conference. And I want to say special thanks to Pastors Daniel and Robinson, and in extension, the Faith Baptist Church as well as the Community Baptist Church for inviting me. And then the, the fellowship that I've had with you, dear folks, is just remarkable. I, I want to tell you that I feel like I'm missing it already because I have to leave tomorrow morning, early in the morning. Then I want to thank also the many people here, as well as in, back in New York that has been praying for me because I have not been doing well for the past few days. I had something between a sinus attack and a cold, and so I was on lots of medication. I wanted to thank the ladies here that day. They gave me so much medication that I, I didn't know which one to take. I had medication for night and I had medication for day. Uh, I just tried my best not to take the wrong one the wrong time. But I thank you all. And then as a result, I must apologize because I had promised some folks in and outside and around the area that I would have stopped by to visit them as I normally do when I'm in and around here. But because of my condition, I was unable to do that. So please accept my apology. It was not intended at all. However, we are... in what I consider among our best of all our Bible conferences. And I hear different speakers say, boy, I, I don't know what to say because the things that I intended to say, the preceding speaker dealt with it. And I was the one that was saying, don't worry about it. God just warned him to hear more of it. Repetition is one of the main laws of learning. And then I think God wanted me to see if I really believed it. And <laughs> when Jim came up to speak, I said, I'm not so sure anymore. But I really thank the Lord for that because I don't know why they would have put me so close to the end of the conference. Because I think that at the end of the conference, or probably I figure it out. At the end of the conference, most things have been said already. All you have to do is come up and say, yes, I agree. <laughs> and that will pretty much cover it. But we want to go on, amen? I appreciate the folks, my friends that are praying and listening in from New York. Uh, my friends from Jamaica that might be listening on, hopefully they can get connected. But more than all, I want us to spend these few moments to look at the word of God and trust in the Lord that we will be able to apply these things to our lives 
as we go on, as we prepare to meet the Lord. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And while you find 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you find it real quickly, I'll invite you to go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Because 2 Peter chapter 3 is really my main text. But I want to show you some things from 2 Timothy chapter 3 before we get to Peter. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm reading from verse number 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus... shall suffer persecution. In verse 14 it says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Let me just hasten to tell you that Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's a title. There are some things that we take very lightly. I want to show you something that I observed. Neither is it variety when you see Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, or Lord. It's, It's intentional. Usually you see Christ Jesus in the epistles. Because most of these people are former Gentiles. And they have no problem with Jesus being the Messiah. Former Gentiles, I say that because if any man being Christ, he's a new creation. So they're no longer Gentiles. They're Christians. Or the new man in Christ. And so, usually, in the epistles, you see Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, in the Gospels, you see Jesus Christ. Because the message is, the Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ that you're waiting for. And a lot of Jews had a problem receiving that. Now, when you see Lord Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or Lord, it's usually people who are following the path. So it could be either former Jews or former Gentiles. And be reminded again, if any man being Christ, he's a new creation. So they're no, no longer Jews nor Gentiles. So I want you to bear that in mind as you see. And it's a very easy way to test or to have an idea to whom this particular scripture is addressing. So we read here, it says, Paul, Peter is writing, um, Paul, Timothy, writing to Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy. And he says, and from a child thou hast known the holy scripture, which is able to make the wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ, Messiah, who is Jesus. Now, that you're there, look in chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul continues to write. We read from verse number 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. 
You go down to verse 6, you'll read, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the, right, the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. I told you that was not my main text, so we're going to go to Second Peter, and hopefully you'll see why in a moment. You'll see the connection. In Second Peter chapter 3, starting to read from verse 3, it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days coffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly man. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day let's pause for prayer Father we pray that your word will be made clear by the power of your Holy Spirit the Lord your servant will be obedient to your spirit and say the things that ought to be said. Direct my thoughts. Protect me from error. Open our understanding to truth. I pray, Lord, as we look at this, we will remember our command from your word to pray for the people of Israel, the Jewish people, that you'll bless them and keep them, that you'll make your face to shine upon them and to be gracious unto them, that you'll lift up your countenance upon them, and give them peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to zero in on verse 8 of Second Peter chapter 3. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. What is this one thing? It says, the one thing is that, the, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. I want to look at some scripture. You don't have to, if you can, find it real quickly, but I'm just going to read them for you for the, for the sake of time. Without even any in-depth study, it is easy to ascertain the fact that that one day is the day of the Lord. But let me hasten to tell you that the day of the Lord has a number of different facets. But it's not Sunday, as we often hear. Neither is it Saturday, as our Sabbatarians would love to believe. The day of the Lord is not 24 hours in length. The Bible tells you. The day of the Lord 
is a thousand years in length. As a result of it, we cannot mix it up with what we often call man's day. And I think it is more accurate to talk about the day of man than man's day. Because really what it is, it is the day when God deals with man. It's not really man's day. The 6,000 years that we are going to be looking at in a moment, it's not really man's day. Man's day is not 6,000 years. It's 6,000 years of God dealing with man in a particular way. And I'll show you in a moment why that is important. And when we think about that, I think Jesus' description of Abraham suggests that he had a glimpse of the day of the Lord. In John chapter 8 and verse 56, we read, For, for your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he, he saw it and was glad. I would believe in the same thought pattern the writer of the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, I read from verse 9, it says, By faith he sojourned, in reference to Abraham, in a land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles or tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heir with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city that had foundation, who would build a and maker was God. So you would agree with me that he had a glimpse of that day. Then I believe the same could be applied to David when he wrote in Psalm number 14, and I read from verse 7. He said, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Would you agree with me if I said Job, even at the times of his trials, he said, we have recorded in Job chapter 19, and I'm reading verses 25 and 26. He said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. When I think about all of this, I want to suggest that we are at an advantage. Comparing with the, these saints, and yeah, when I talk about saints, I want to include even angels. Because I believe that the saints that will return with the Lord are angels. And not men, as is commonly taught. The reason why I believe that is when I go back to the Old Testament and I see Moses leaving to go back to Egypt to retrieve his brethren, he did not take Zipporah with him. He left her. And oftentimes the word saint in scripture refers to angels. And because Jesus is coming back then for war, it's uncanny that he would have taken his wife, his bride, sorry, to battle. But on the side, I want us to understand that it says even prophets and saints, according to First Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, desire to look into the things that we have been talking about at this conference all week. Angels desire to look into. I don't want that to make us heady or high-minded. I think it should 
humble us and be reminded that to whom much is given, much is required. And this is one thing that has caused me to be even more conscious and focused because if God has allowed us to understand what we now see from the scripture, and can I make a confession to you folks? I would love to unsee some of these things sometimes. That's not a word. I would love if some of these things are not true. You know why? I was talking to John this morning. Some of my dear friends and relatives will be in serious trouble if they're true. Especially those that not only refuse to believe, but those who are doing everything to despise those that believe. It is frightening to me. But I'm resolute. Folks, I tell my folks at church, and those of you that are listening, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching, I'm telling the truth. I will recall. If I say something in this message, and as I walk out in the vest of you, you can show me from scripture that I was wrong. I recall. I want to be right. I want to be prepared to meet the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's one thing to say, I want to hear the Lord say, well done. But it's surely another thing to have the Lord say, well done. But let me just show you some things here. I want us to go to 2 Peter. Oh, yeah, in chapter 3, look at verse 12. Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of, the, the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to the promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Amen? Wherefore, beloved, seeing that we look for such things, be diligent. That's what I'm talking about. Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And the account that being lo- the, uh, the long suffering of our Lord is the salvation. Even, oh I love this. Because a lot of people are wondering whether this gospel that we preach is the gospel of the grace of God or it's the gospel of the glories of Christ. Look what Peter said about his brother Paul. Bear in mind what we have been reading about in the preceding passages up to this point. And I know I left out a few verses in the middle. But you can connect them at your leisure. And Peter said, verse 15 again. And account that the long suffering of our Lord is, sal- is, is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given him, hath written unto us. Remember that Paul, after he, his eyes were open, the account of Acts chapter 9, Paul was prior to that a member of the Sanhedrin. Paul, well, he was called Saul. He was the upholder of the principles of God. The problem that he and his colleagues had, he could not understand why this Jesus 
who claim to be the Messiah is so slack on some of the fundamental principles of God. So we have been misguided to think that these people were ungodly, wicked people and Saul got saved in Acts chapter 9. Saul didn't get saved in Acts chapter 9. Saul was already a part of God's family. In other words, Saul was a descendant of the people that God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my son go. Not only that, my firstborn son. Now, if we have that properly, we will clarify a lot of stuff. So Saul said he was persecuting the people. They weren't even called church then. He was persecuting the people that were in the way, the people who were following this Jesus, who seemingly was plausible sometimes, but other times he seems out of the way because he would have done things that were not conducive to the Mosaic laws, to the laws of our fathers. As a result, we are going to persecute these people anyway. I love it when we get to chapter 24 in the book of Acts. So I'll say, you know what? That we are used to persecute. I'm not a part of. And I'm so thankful to God. And God used that same form as Saul, now Paul, to write most of the, most of the New Testament. Isn't that something? And when you go on, we need to bear that. So, so Peter says, our dear brothers, brother Paul, in all, that is the point I want you, want you to get. After he, he went into the Arabian desert, we can read it from Galatians chapter 1, from verse 11 and down. He had a, a, a personal encounter with God. God taught him the things that he learned. It says in verse 16, as also in all his epistles, Speaking in them the things, these things, in which we are sometimes hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable twist or twist, as they do also the other scripture, unto their own destruction. And that's so unfortunate. I can't be here without just making mention of this and passing on. You know... I heard, and I'm so sorry that Pastor Robinson is not in here to hear this, but when he made mention yesterday of all the people all over the world that are street, following the stream of this conference, now we would think that, oh, it's a little small conference out in the corner of Tennessee, you know, it's very insignificant. People all over the world, my friends in Jamaica, probably if they got on stream, they're there now watching, hey guys. I hope you're hearing me clearly. People over in New York, people all over the world are listening. It's amazing how God works. It's usually not the way we would think. And if this will help some of us pastors that are here and might be hearing me, I just want to remind you, don't talk about your small church. Because you don't have a small church. God has one church. You happen to have a part of that church. And I like the guy that got the one talent. If that guy had just gone out and got one more talent. He would be a hundred percent guy. 
You know, if, if, if God wasn't God, I'd say God is partial to give that guy one talent. Because all he had to do to get 100% was to get one. And he'd be just like the guy who had five. I have a funny feeling that God would get another one and give him. Just like, wait, anyway, that's all speculative. But I want you to understand that there's no such thing as small church. There's one church. Because when the church is raptured, the church will be taken out. If the Lord has been gracious to me that I've been there when he has started three churches now. I don't walk around and tell people that I start three churches. I don't start in the church. If I start the church, it's not a church. But I've been there when the Lord has started three churches. I doubt if I ever have that privilege again, but if I do, I'm not going to give it a name. I was sharing with some of my colleagues a couple of days. I'm not going to give it a name. You know why? No offense. But when you give the church a name, Baptist, brethren, or whatever, you are obligated to follow the line of that denominational name. I know some of you say, oh, no, we are, but you do. Especially when you come upon a truth that the other brethren have not yet seen. And they ostracize you. And some of us cannot stand alone. And that is why I often hear when I talk to pastors and other people about what the Lord has been showing me from the scripture concerning the kingdom. And they will ask me this question. How come so many people have not seen that yet? You know what my answer is to that? Because it's true. The majority is always wrong in scripture. I mean, I want you to understand. Oh, I was going to get to this. Verse 18. We are talking about church growth. Almost invariably, people will ask me, and if you had asked me, no offense, how much you're running? A pastor church in the Bronx, how much you're running? It's almost, I mean, I can ask the question and answer for them. Almost invariably. So, what's the membership? Why on God's earth is that important? I had a pastor telling me about his church and how he had four baptisms for the year. I know God had blessed the church and it was wonderful. And I was there rejoicing with him. And when the conversation came to a pause, I said, so is the church growing? And he paused. He said, he thought, you didn't hear what I said. I had four baptisms. I said, I heard. I said, but is the church growing? He said, yes, that's what I'm telling you. I said, no, friend. Numerics has nothing at all to do with church growth. And that is what man has caused us to believe. Numerics, let me tell you what the Bible says about church growth. Now that I'm there, it's not a part of my message, but I couldn't pass it. Verse 18, it's easy to remember, it's the last verse, the last couple of verses, last verse in, in Peter. And grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Remember, Lord Jesus Christ is not a curse word. Christ is not Jesus' surname. 
Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How much is that? Nothing about numerics in that, folks. I want us to understand it, and I hope it's an encouragement to you. I tell you, if Jesus was on earth today and he ever chose to candidate for a pastorate, he wouldn't get very many. They wouldn't take Jesus. After three and a half years, he had 12 disciples, and one was quite problematic. I don't think it would be a good resume for most of our churches. But, but that beside the point, let's go back. We're talking about the day of the Lord, and we don't want to get stuck into that. Let me just hasten along. In the epistle of Peter, our main text, 2 Peter chapter 3. In this epistle, Peter is presenting the word specifically to the new man in Christ, as I illustrated earlier on. Not one to the Jewish people from which we draw doctrine, correction, instruction in righteousness, because we know that they are there for that. The Bible tells us that. And I'm not in any way devaluing these writings. I'm just emphasizing so we can understand that Peter was writing specifically to the new man in Christ. I am simply drawn to the fact that this was so, especially when I look how Peter introduced, look at verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 3. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. You cannot be reminded of something that you never knew. Peter is storing up their mind. Some one of the preachers, and I don't remember who this, this week, because they were all preaching parts of my messages. So I hope you're listening. But Peter said, I will continue to tell you. I need to tell you. I know you know, but I'm going to tell you again. So that your minds will be stirred up constantly on this matter. Now that I remember storing up your mind. And the reason why Peter wants to stop your minds. You know, something that I shared in the lunchroom two days ago with some of my colleagues that were nearby. Most Christians today do not need to observe the Lord's Supper. Don't, 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 no. Let me explain. You know why? Because the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remind us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Remember, do these things in remembrance of me. Most Christians don't need that. Because according to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 from verse 11 down to chapter 6 verse 2, they have not left that, so you don't have to remind them. They have not left foundational things that you don't have to remind them. They always remember. But they can do it because, you know, we like form. We need to. Observe communion carefully because it is easy for us to forget those foundational things. And the Lord said we must do it so that we are reminded. It comes back to my mind because I'm telling you, Peter wrote and he said, I know you know. The people to whom Peter was writing were mature people. He said, I know you know, but I want to stop your minds. And I believe this conference has done exactly that. And I don't want you guys to get jealous. But John, Jim and I have post-conference, conference at the hotel. Let me tell you something. 
I'm going to take an offering this evening, by the way. We have had some wonderful times just getting into the Word. Just what a joy it is to just sit and talk about the Word of God. So we need to remind ourselves. Remind ourselves of what? Go over to 1 Peter with me, if you will. I'm looking at chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. And while if I read 1 Peter, chapter 1, the same thing is true. Most Christians have never moved from the same foundation that we talk, that Hebrew, the writer the Hebrew writes about. You make a note of that and read, look at Hebrews chapter 2 when you have time. And you'll, you'll see, see that um, the writer of the Hebrew talks about the, he wanted to write about the great salvation instead of the common salvation that Jude mentioned in Jude. But most Christians don't want to move from that because it's, it's fun, it's milk. You know, it's, it's easy to take milk. All you do is suck and swallow. When you get to the door and the pastor rub your you're back on your burp. You're fine. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was going to Peter. First Peter chapter 1. I forget I don't have my people here. My people are looking forward to a real pastor one of these days. First Peter chapter 1. I'm reading from verse number 13. If I can just find it. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your minds and be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see the other way around this time? Jesus Christ. Uh, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former loss in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you uh, is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. The word conversation there, Anastophe in the Greek, conduct, manner of life, the way you behave yourself. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. I couldn't do as good a job, I don't think, as Jim did yesterday. But I just want to say, my, and I told him I was going to do it, and that's why I'm glad he stayed. He's just staying to make sure I didn't do this behind his back. Thank you, Jim. I am not going to go from the backside of the sign that was given to the people of Israel from where he started, because he started, oh, important. And, and so he talked about, as Christians, we need to observe a Sabbath principle, and I'm, I'm with it. But I've moved, I'm not going to start there. Because, especially now that I understand that there's such controversy about signs, and my understanding of signs, signs have no place in the church. According to Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, it is the Jews that require signs. And if we start to mix that up, in my opinion, we're going to, we could have some problems, because the, my charismatic friends will run with that. Because if you're going to have one sign, how are you going to prevent them from having others? And, you know, the, the scripture tells us that the signs were for Israel. 
the people of Israel, all of them were saints pointing to something. You understand what a sign or type is? It's pointing to something. You don't sit at the sign and say, I have found the location. The sign is pointing to the location. So I want to respect Pastor Jim's position, but I want to move over to where he pointed. And I thank God. I, I have no doubt he agrees with me because he went there too. We are talking about the day to which the sign points. The day of the Lord. That day of rest. And we're going to be developing that a little, in a little while. But I just want to mention that to you. So that as we go along you will see it a little clearer. The people of God. Go back to our text in Second Peter chapter 3. The people of God. Were willingly ignorant of something. Now come to verse 5. For this they are willingly ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now, when I look at willingly ignorant, this is a very interesting combination of words. It's almost an oxymoron. Willingly ignorant. It's like saying knowingly ignorant. What are the mockers, as they are called someplace else? Scoffers. Willingly ignorant of. They're willingly ignorant of that the world that now is. And they have a nice name for it. Uniformitarian theology. And the maintenant of this theology teaches that things continue as they were. You're not going to change. You know, quite interestingly, some of you might not never have heard of the expression, the terminology before. But I want us to think about it that so many people talk, for example, about the rapture. And I know some of my friends here, they might just have to shut out a little bit as I deal with this. We talk about the rapture of the church. And oh, the rapture is imminent. It could be any moment now. I want to suggest to you that if Jesus should call out his church this moment, and God know I'd be glad. Not because I have a terminal illness. Not because life is bad. None of the above are true. I'm enjoying life. But I, according to the scripture, I would prefer the other life. But a lot of Christians, if Jesus should call out his church this moment, they'll be disappointed. Lord, how could you call out the church today and I've just completed my new building? How could you call out the church today and I've just broke ground to build a new edifice for you? And some of them who want to act a little more spiritual will tell you we have a lot more work to be done. Usually those are some of the laziest Christians on earth. You see the people who have all this work to be done? If you tell them, oh, we are going to hand out some gospel tracts. Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't make it today. All of these people who have a lot of work to be done, you go to their place of employment and ask the people how many persons there know that they are Christians. You'll be shocked. These people who have a lot of work to do. I just want you to know that. Let me hasten on because I want to catch some things before my time runs out. 
the people of God have become so earth-centric that the heaven and hell story has even become redundant. Not to mention not knowing that God is establishing a kingdom. Can I use an expression that I often use? I coined it. I, it might not symmetrically fit all of the doctrinal ramifications. But it will carry the idea that I want to make. That God is establishing a government. And he see, he's recruiting officers. That's my understanding of the church. The reason why I tell you that is I want you to understand one of the reasons I believe the church is so weak and spiritually anemic is because when the church meets, the church is not catered for. We are told that we need to get all the people in the community to come and meet wherever the church meets. And when the people come, what we do is that we put the church in a proverbial China cabinet. You stay there. You're baptized and you're now a part of the church and you stay there. And let us deal with the world. And everything that we say from our pulpits almost is geared to the people of the world who don't understand anyway. And the church says they're in starvation. You wonder why it is so difficult for us to explain something to the people of God? It's because the people of God have no word. They have been placed there. And just as you treat your China cabinet on special occasions, you take out those wares and use them Thanksgiving and birthdays and whatever. And that equates to our forms and function. And the next question after you tell folks about your church, after they ask you how much you're running this, ask you what your programs are. What are the programs that you have? And at the beginning of almost every year, you'll have a business meeting and you sit back and you plan all your programs and you have a whole list of stuff and you have to do this by the end of January, do this by the end of February, do this by the end of March. It sounds like Walmart to me. Somebody was telling me about the frequency of his business meetings. And I said, I don't have business meetings much. As a matter of fact, I might have one every three or so years. I mean it. You know why? The reason why I don't need a lot of business meetings is because I preach from the Constitution. And everybody have a copy of the Constitution at home. And if you don't have one, we have one at the entrance of our building. Every time you come in, if you don't have a, a copy of the Constitution, we have some blue ones on a shelf there. We just ask you to leave it when you leave. Because there might be some other people like you. And I'm not knocking technology, but too many of our people have become too dependent on technology. As a result, we have been far removed... From the things of God, the word of God, we don't sit and write notes anymore. We write them on our iPads and we don't walk with our Bibles anymore. As a result, we can't find scripture. I'm not knocking technology, folks. I have iPads too. I have computers too. You know, I love to preach at funerals. 
You know why? You have a captive audience at the funeral. Because mortality steals people in the face, especially if you have a casket up front. But what I notice at funerals, even preachers don't carry Bibles. And nowadays, people have gotten to the place. I'm talking about the church becoming earth-centric. We don't want to leave here. We have all sorts of plans to stay here. In our program, there's nothing about leaving here just in case we claim that God could call out his church, but Lord, don't call it out yet because I have some plans that I need to get finished. But I have news for you. The Lord's going to call out the church one day when many of us might have plans unfinished. Folks, I just want to tell you this morning that I am looking forward to the rapture of the church. I would love it to be today. I would go away from Tennessee. As a matter of fact, and this might sound very childish to you, but one of the things I pray, I pray to God and ask God, I don't even want to change my Bible. I, I said, Lord, I can't start with a new Bible again. I have so many things written in this Bible that I, I, I went and got it refurbished. And I didn't even refurbish with a leather binding. Because I don't think it's going to be that permanent. I mean, it was being cheap, to be honest. But I, 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 re, I rebounded with a paper binding. And I'm hoping that I don't wear out this Bible. I really am. But one of the things that people talk about is permanence. Oh, you want permanence. You want this permanent. I don't want permanence. I want to leave. Let me just share a few more things with you because I just have a few minutes left. In Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, he says, If he be therefore risen in Christ, you notice it's not Jesus. I hope you understand the principle. In Christ, Messiah. The anointed one. If he did who risen in Christ, seek ye those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not the things of this earth. And when your affections are set on the things above, you have to live here. You have a job, you're employed, and you do stuff, but you're so, you're set on the things above. And I don't want you to think the things above is what we always think. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Because the scripture says, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and you understand that it's talking about atonement, you understand that Christ is in the office of high priest now, and if you set your affection on that, you know that ultimately Christ is going to move to stage number three. He has already accomplished his prophetic period. He's now doing his priestly period. And if you set your affection on that, you know that the next step will be his kingly period. That is the time when he sets up what I have chosen to call his government. And now that we know that he's recruiting officers for the government, we are aligning ourselves to be participants in this government of God. And this conference has been telling us how to be recruits for the government of God. But Peter said, don't be ignorant of this thing. Let me just explain to you 
what he was talking about. I'm going to equate Peter's writing with that of Moses. I don't have to read again Second Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where he's talking about. It is by the word that the ruined world was restored. You know, Jesus, oftentimes when he's in conversation with his disciples and some others, he would take them back to the writings of Moses. Remember that? As a matter of fact, he got to one point where he called them fools. And he says, then he began at Moses to teach them all the things concerning himself. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning, it's really in beginning, God created the Hebrew word here, bara, which could be translated select, choose, dispatch, or do. God dispatched, or God did, the heaven and the earth. And the earth was, the Hebrew word there is higher. A better translation here would be became, and the word, and the earth became without form and void. Without form and void, too. The Hebrew word, you don't have to remember those words. I'll just tell you so that you know that different words. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Look what Peter, oh, you, you move from there. Let me just read, trust me. Read what Peter had said in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly man. Men. So, the world, the current world, the world that is now in contrast to the world then. This is so far removed from the understanding of people today that it has almost become offensive. One of my former professors lives in this area and I was trying to contact him, but I understand he's not doing very well. Because when I was in college, they taught me to be afraid of the gap theory. Believe me, I don't believe in the gap theory. I believe in the gap fact. It's not a theory. I mean, if my former professor was here, I would have to say it a little more nicely. I wouldn't want to hurt him that bad. But it's a fact. If you don't understand that there, understand what Isaiah said. Let me just do this for you. Isaiah in chapter 45 and verse 18, it says, For thus said the Lord that created the same word, the heaven and the earth. God himself had formed the earth and made it. He established it. He created it not to who? He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. It's no wonder the prophet Jeremiah, when he was talking about describing Judah, he gave a similar description in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse, uh, verse 23. It says, I behold the earth and lo, it was without form and void and the heavens and there was no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. And I behold, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. Folks, do not be ignorant of this fact. Here the prophets are telling us 
that God did not create an earth without form and void. God has no unfinished symphony. That's against the character of God. But that beside the point. Subsequent to the events of Genesis chapter 1 into chapter 2 verse 2. Did I ask you to go over to Genesis with Mary there? If you're not there, go back to Genesis chapter 1, please. Because you might have left. In Genesis chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 6, it says, And the Lord God said, Let there be. Higher. Same word as it translated, or became, or was. Let there be a firmament, or let firmament be, in essence. In the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the water. And God made the firmament. And he divided the waters which were. Same word again, huh? Under the firmament. And the, from the waters that were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning was the second day. You know, I can't help think about this. Because I mentioned this sign that God gave in the Sabbath. You don't have to turn there because Jim read it yesterday. But in Exodus 31, verse 13, it says, God told Moses, speak down to the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths you shall keep, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generation. Our brother and I were talking about it last evening. That he may know that I am the Lord. Church don't need sign. And God specifically said the sign was between me and the children of Israel throughout their generation. The sign of the Sabbath. And that's why I want to move away from that. And say, as we read earlier on in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The sign of the Sabbath was given to the people of Israel. They were told in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Because I'm not dealing with this sign Pastor, I'm going over to that which, to which the sign points. I'm dealing with the day of the Lord. And Peter says, Be holy, for I am holy. So the same thing that the children of Israel saw in the sign in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20 verse 8 to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I'm saying, children of God, live holy. And that is one of the reasons why some people don't want to adhere to kingdom truths. Because kingdom truth solicits that Christians live holy. Because there's a judgment seat of Christ that every Christian will stand before God. And those persons, whether you listen to me or you will go back and listen, I want you to understand it's no award ceremony. It's no coronation ceremony. The Bible says it's a judgment and there are detriments that Christians can face at that judgment. And this is what a lot of our friends don't like. You know why? If it is true, it will change the way a lot of us live. If it is true that we are accountable and just as in, in, in Numbers chapter 20, Moses was referred to among unbelievers. So because he believed not. A lot of Christians are unbelievers. 
When they hear that, they say, oh, because unbelievers, we normally refer to unsaved. But a lot of Christians are unbelievers. You know why? We don't believe that God knows our motives. So we can say one thing, and I can stand here and tell you whatever I want to tell you. But I have to constantly remind myself that God knows my motive. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows whether or not my, my words are in tune with my action, the way I live when no one sees me, when no one knows that I'm supposed to be the pastor, when I'm on the road, when I drive down the street. And that's one of the reasons why some of our Christian brethren cannot have some signs on their cars because they drive like Jehu. Oh, I forget I live in, I'm in the New York area. I don't want you to accuse New Yorkers. New Yorkers are good drivers. You understand what I'm saying to us, folks? I want us to understand that a lot of us, we go through the motions, and I, I, one of the reasons why I believe Peter wants to remind us and to stop our pure minds is because we can leave this conference and go right back into the place where we were at one time. Peter calls it in the ignorance of your former state. Now that we know better, we are going to live expecting reward. Don't try to play holy. I don't want any reward. As a matter of fact, if I get any reward, I'm just going to put it under the master's feet. I want reward. I am working for reward. And God loves that. He says, him that come to God must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let me conclude by telling you, Beloved, the word beloved, the Greek word agapetos, there. It's a word of endearment. You know, some of my friends will tell me that beloved in scripture sometimes refers to unsaved people. The Bible is not written to unsaved people. Beloved. And even though it's a word of endearment, it's also a serious warning. I don't want you to be ignorant of this one fact. Because all I have said about an, a world that then was, in comparison to the world that now is, if you don't understand that, I think the psalmist tells us in Psalm 11 and verse 3, if the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? It's not a mistake why Jesus referred to Moses so often. I remember as a young Christian, they told me that if you want to learn to walk as a Christian, start to read from the Gospel of John. That's not true. John is easy Greek, but it's difficult to understand if you don't have a proper foundation. The best place for a Christian to start is Genesis. It's not by chance, folks, and develop a foundation. And if you understand Genesis, it's very likely that you'll be on the proper path. So the word here is, don't you forget that the world that then was. He said, don't be ignorant. The word ignorant comes, is the Greek word, lanthano, to allow to escape one's notice. 
we can allow things to escape our notice by what has happened to us now, and none of us are exempt. I'm not talking about those that are seeking the kingdom of God. I'm talking about children of God. Just as Israel allowed it to escape their notice. Israel knew the promise of God. But they got caught up in stuff. And as a result of that, it escaped their notice. They were so busy doing stuff. We are just as exposed. As a matter of fact, I think as the year rolls on, the longer we stay here, the more exposed we are. You realize what is happening now? We wouldn't even think about it a few years back. Christians can easily do things now. And I tell my folks, I say, listen, be careful of stuff that are introduced to you that is prefaced by the word Christian. A Christian movie. A Christian dance. You don't have to preface these things that they're Christian. They should sell themselves. But because the church has become so worldly and doing so much worldly stuff, we doctor the world stuff and call it Christian. I saw a church that was having a Christian carnival. You know where the word carnival comes from? Carnia. Flesh. Flesh leads to sin. But we have all sorts of stories and programs and the, the whole idea is that is how we are going to get converts. And I think the world is having a hard time with the church. Everything the world does, the church is behind them. And so the poor world, I'm talking about the cosmos, the orderly arrangement, which includes the church, by the way. We do all sorts of stuff. We confuse people left, right, and center. We don't know where we are because everything that happens. Uh, recently, in the Bronx area, a church met one Sunday morning, and they say, oh, it's just down there today. And we are going to have a fun day. It was their regular Sunday morning, and they, had, they have a parking area, and they, they just went outside and played games, and they, they ran races. And said, so that will take the people off the street to come and run some race. We were talking in the van yesterday that some people were, some pastors were providing lunches, and, and the crowd just got bigger and bigger. They said, oh, you're going to church? I said, no, I'm just going to have the lunch, and then we leave. Folks, we need to get with it. I have to close. My time ran out. But let me just remind you, be not ignorant of this one thing. And the way it's very easy to be ignorant. Just like the children of Israel, you know what is out ahead. But we can sit back and allow ourselves to drift. And drift. And drift in complacency. And one danger. That we are in danger as seekers of the kingdom of God is that we can get to the place where we believe that we have it. We have a proper understanding of the word of God, and all we need to do now is to wait. Paul says we need to strive. 
We need to run. We need to endure. So don't sit down and be complacent. You know how Jesus described that? In Revelation chapter 3, he said, you think you're rich and had need of nothing. And every time we read that, we think material things, right? Material things could be included. But I think he was talking about, we think we have word. We have so much word that we don't need anything more. We understand everything that we need to understand. Especially we, we, we have just come out of a conference, we have it all. We don't have to worry about anything. You think you're rich and have need of nothing, and Jesus is saying you're poor and wretched and blind and naked. My word for you is Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise be left us to enter into his rest. Any of you should come short of it. Just like our brother Israel did, any one of us can do. May God help us that as we come to the end of this conference, we'll do everything that we can to fulfill the promise of God. Now unto him that is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen.